that Digital Society Podcast brings together leading journalists, politicos, and key policy influencers to explore the impact technological change is having in the UK and across the world. And it's hosted by Atos Senior Vice President for Strategy and Communications, Kulveer Ranger. Hello again, this is Kulveer Ranger, and I'm Senior Vice President for Strategy and Communications for Atos. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Baroness Nikki Morgan. Nikki Morgan is joining us on the Digital Society podcast, and really, she doesn't need an introduction for those of us who have been watching and maybe slightly involved, but absolutely gripped by the politics of at least the last decade. You couldn't have avoided the contribution that she has made uh, as a politician, as an MP, and now in the House of Lords. During that period, she's had several roles, major roles in government. She was Secretary of State for Education. Uh, she was uh, uh, the Minister at the Treasury. She also had the Ministerial Brief for Women and Equalities and was also Secretary of State for the Department of Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Now, uh, I, I'm not sure, uh, may I call you Nikki? I always check first time of course. With, with peers. Uh, um, Nikki, did it change? Did the D change while in your time there, or was it before or after? I always kind of forget when the D changed from department to digital. It was it was before I got there, um, and um, but I think digital was pretty well uh, embedded when I uh, took over. Uh, but it was a new departure actually for the uh, department in the last couple of years, and I'm sure as we're going to talk about, digital is becoming more and more important, and we're all going to have to become better and better digitally skilled than we ever might have expected when we started our working lives. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, which is why I do pick up on that D. But look, let, let's just, just recap a little bit about that, that decade from 2010 when you were elected uh, to all those fantastic jobs that you've held and actually, you know, had made quite an impression in, in your time through the, the, the House. What, what, what's your sort of view on that? Because it's, it was a, it's a meteoric rise. You know, quite rightly, I think you, a lot of us will say you're a hugely talented individual. And, you know, I've seen you close quarters quite often. Uh, you've got a huge appetite for getting things done, which is, I think, a big part of being a politician. How was it for you? How was it for holding those posts? And, you know, what's your <laughs> takeaway from that decade of different jobs? Well, I'm not, look, I feel incredibly blessed. Um, very, very fortunate. First of all, you know, being an elected member of parliament, there are lots of people seek election. Not everybody is successful. Um, and I was able to uh, win the seat in 2010 uh, from uh, the opposition. So that in itself was, um, you know, it was, it was a big achievement for me and for the local campaigners who've been working for many years to, to make sure that that happened. Look, and then I was just incredibly fortunate. I had a fantastic uh, decade. I was a whip, a government whip. So that's a great insight into how Parliament works. I was in the Treasury with George Osborne. Uh, I was asked to be Education Secretary, which is just an amazing uh, role, uh, hugely important to the whole country. Uh, I was chair of the Treasury Select Committee in the House of Commons. Um, again, just a fantastic committee to be part of. Um, and then, as you say, Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Secretary. Um, but it was also an incredibly intense decade. Um, and I do think that probably for every sort of um, 
six months that you do as an MP, um, it's kind of a bit like cat years, really. Um, it's probably worth about three on the outside, as it were. Um, and Westminster is an extraordinary place. Uh, but um, uh, I was I was ready to move on. Um, but uh, I, I miss it, of course. But I am very fortunate, as you said, to have been appointed uh, a peer, made a peer by Boris Johnson. So I get to have a little slice of Westminster life in the House of Lords. But it's not it's not quite the same as being in the House of Commons, but definitely a slightly slower pace of life, but still get to uh, you know, have a ringside seat in Westminster, which is fantastic. I've got to say, your, your point about the way time feels in politics is is intriguing. You know, personally, I had that smidgen of a taste of it when I was working at City Hall with yeah. Boris Johnson, who's mayor. And the four years I spent there definitely didn't feel like four years. It definitely <laughs> felt a lot longer. Exactly. It's, it's the intensity of being at the centre yeah. of political decision making. And yes, you know, the pressure that I think everybody feels when they're in those jobs, obviously in, in a positive way. Yeah. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. Um, but that pressure, that responsibility, and actually that need to get things done yeah. does mean you're operating at a much higher pace. And that makes things just feel like you, you do get more done, mm. but it does mm. feel like a hell of a long time. And it does take a lot of energy out of you. So look, a fantastic 10 years, as we say. Yeah. Um, but but let me just focus in a bit about the educational side. Mm. So as you said, huge brief, hugely influential. Mm. Mm. Uh, has holds such a responsibility uh, and maybe if I could ask you a little bit about your views and the kind of experience you got when you were in that role about skills that young people need because we know it's an ongoing yeah. conversation it, as we move into what we we actually I call a digital society which is where we are heading we're heading yeah. into a digitally driven society whether that's proactively subconsciously um, consciously engaging in the technology or it being done behind the scenes. How do you feel that's been developing in terms of the educational um, arena? Do, do we seem to be getting that right in equipping young people to enter a digital world, both in terms of mm. what they could do for skills as jobs, but also just mm. for living in that? Mm. So I think a few things. I mean, first of all, as I said, education is an amazing role because, um, you know, we we all go through uh, education in, in, in one form or another. And I think it is the great life accelerator, actually, if you have a great education and inspiring teachers. I think you realise that the world can be your oyster. And that's really what we want for everybody. And as education secretary, that's what you want for everyone. Um, but it's it's tough getting that consistency across the country. Uh, and different governments try it uh, different ways. And obviously, when I was there, I took over Michael Gove. We were very much into the programme of schools becoming uh, academies. Um, and you know, we absolutely wanted to prepare young people for life in modern Britain in, in all its ways. And I think you're completely right that, that digital was already a part of very much of what we were doing in many schools um, and of course uh, we talked about coding we talked about stem subjects um, and we shouldn't forget creativity being an important part of the digital world uh, very much uh, as well but i think what obviously the pandemic has done is demonstrated for all of us how we are living in a hybrid world. And of course, uh, for many young people, um, I know, you know, you've got young children, I've got a 13 year old, um, they are digital natives already. And of course, you'll see many young children who are more familiar and comfortable with uh, iPads than their grandparents are, for example. Uh, and so I think the challenge for the education system now is, is sort of several fold. Uh, firstly, obviously, I think hybrid learning it's probably here to stay to some extent. Um, obviously, we hope very much that students don't uh, have their um, 
face-to-face -face learning suspended again. But I just think that actually uh, for children who are perhaps um, who are not, not well and therefore missing education or for whom school perhaps is less accessible or with particular needs, uh, actually online learning does, there's a place for it. I also think for staff as well, and we often tend to think um, when we talk about education very much about what's the student experience, everything else, but obviously there are hundreds of thousands of teachers um, in the education system. And for them, they've also had to massively increase their digital skills and confidence in the course of the last 15 months. And I think that the hybrid learning, like for lots of other professions, uh, hybrid learning, hybrid working is very much going to be a part of that. So I think my conclusion over the last few months really has been that we need to embed digital in everything that we do, um, including in all lessons. And I think that we do need to probably now look again at the curriculum. The knowledge curriculum is very, very important. We, you know, we, we and maths and English are still non-negotiables uh, that we want all young people to leave school with. And we're still struggling in some ways to make sure that that happens. But digital confidence, digital skills, um, that, that digital uh, ability, I think, is going to be something employers are going to look for. But as you say, it's going to be essential very much for, for, for life too. And um, I also, when I was education secretary, talked a lot about character skills. So those are the sorts of things that I think employers want uh, their young people they're recruiting to have as well. Uh, you know, resilience and teamwork and, as I say, creativity and integrity. But I also think digital confidence needs to be embedded in the same way we want character to be embedded throughout the, the curriculum. And so I think that is the challenge, actually, for uh, the education of, of all ages in the 2020s. Yes, that's a fantastic point about confidence, isn't it? Because when you think about confidence, really your confidence comes by trusting something. But that trust comes from having that little bit more insight into what is happening. Yeah. Because if you have that little bit of insight that says, I understand what other people are doing or what's happening in the technology, behind, then you're willing to say, yes, I'm confident, I'll trust it and uh, I'll move on. Um, and and I, I actually I've been talking about this for a number of years, a model about, as you say, we've been evolving. Digital is becoming consciously, subconsciously embedded in everything around us. And there's a model that I've talked about around the personal digital ecosystem for many years that has kind of developed. We've all done this where we've got our we've got our hardware. We've all got our laptops, our tablets, our smartphones. We've got them individually. We've then got our are platforms and when i mean platforms i mean things like facebook mm. linkedin twitter snapchat whatever your mm. social media platform of choice your platform that connects you to people and things and then you actually have your own connectivity and that's where your wi-fi your broadband yeah. your, your, your actual 5g or 4g if you're still there is, is bringing this model together for each yeah. one of us we have done that consciously or subconsciously created that personal ecosystem digital ecosystem around yeah. us but do we understand that because that that ecosystem enables everybody else to pile in on us to, mm. to, to and i mean in a positive way but mm. to, to, to sell things to market yep. to us to connect to us and how do we a understand that model and b do we control feel we're in control of that because we may feel we're not and then c as that evolves, because you can see things like we can see things like um, super scaling of that model as as uh, edge computing comes in more and more happens in that ecosystem. And I mean, your your smart vehicle, uh, you know, if you've got a yeah. motor vehicle or if you've yeah. got more and more technology in your home, you run your heating system, yeah. you start adding more and more elements to your personal ecosystem. And I say this as someone who's got, you know, you've got 
this, which is, Absolutely. forget the word phone, we all know I'm controlling my heating, my car, my <laughs> banking, you know, everything from here. So that that is something that from an educational perspective, it, we've been in a generation that we've learned as we've gone along, but now you've got a generation coming into that, it's already set up, they, mm. they've got to be ready to go and actually take mm. forward. So I see, see a huge opportunity, yeah. you know, really, as we talk that digital society, yeah. about that understanding of those models in way people can relate to it uh, and, and maybe where the role of both public and private sector mm. is to explain that to people. Because I feel we at us, we're one of those firms, technology firms, who provide infrastructure, data services, even cybersecurity. Mm. We have responsibility to probably explain that to a broader audience. Yeah. So that people feel comfortable with it. I think that that's something that you know we pick up on. Is that is that is that coming in? Did that ever come through in the postback? Probably not. But did you did you feel people wanted to know more, or or do you politicians have an appetite to know more about that? Well, I think politicians absolutely do have a, a, an appetite, and of course, um, although it's been unusual for the last fifteen months, don't forget lots of politicians, you know, elected mainly, but but unelected as well, those of us in the House of Lords, will be engaging with um, companies like Atos, like the platforms you talk about, but also businesses, uh, small and large in our constituencies, for example, or those that we work with um, outside our parliamentary responsibilities. And they're all having the conversations, as you say, about the digital infrastructure. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, so the other thing we need to teach young people about is obviously how to make digital work for them. So the other thing, of course, as digital culture, media and sports secretary, uh, I was also very much looking at was the whole issue of online safety. Um, but I also think, you, you know, we, we, we rely on our phones, don't we, so heavily now. And that little thing that comes up at the beginning of the week that says, you know, last week your screen time was up 9% or down or whatever. Um, and they, they are designed to be addictive. So making them work for you rather than, you know, letting you work for them is really important. Yeah, and that's, that's a, a sort of a lesson, a conversation that we would never have had. Well, we didn't have when we were young. Um, and I think that um, it is our role as, as parents, but also uh, teachers and others uh, to help young people to grow up and, as I say, make the technology work for them. But equally, as you say, Kobe, to make the make them excited about the opportunities. So I'm also very heavily involved in uh, careers education through my role as a director of the careers and enterprise company. Um, and I want young people, actually people of all ages, to be inspired about the digital jobs that are available. And and we've got to sort of break down what does being a data scientist, you know, look like? What does being a, a an artificial intelligence, you know, creator? What does being a sort of a, a computer engineer mean? What does working in IT in the 2020s and 2030s uh, look like? Uh, because we're all going to have a number of different careers and we've also got to accept we're going to be learning exactly as we've all had to do in the last 15 months getting to grips with teams and zoom and whatever else it might be um and the funny thing is when you have to do it you do do it um and that's what we've kind of got to keep i think from the last uh, few months which is that feeling of um you know we really got to keep up with the technology and as i say make it make it work for us but it's, it's definitely on the radar but yes. as you all know, getting um, ministers uh, to just to have the time, really, to lift their heads from looking at the day-to-day, -day, the imperative stuff, the stuff that's on the to-do list for today is, is really hard. And that's why people outside who are thinking about these things are so valuable um, in then saying to government, here are the conclusions. This is where, for example, where the curriculum needs to go, where the online safety conversations are, are going, you know, where the skills needed for the future are going to be. 
No, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's it's that balance of getting getting that strategic thought coming through as people are dealing with day to day. But I, I love your point about um, you know when that ping comes in about how much screen time you've used. I I, I never know how to respond to that because if I'm up, I'm like, well, what was I doing last week? Yep. And that must be invaluable, surely. And if I'm down, I'm like, was I not doing enough? <laughs> or what did I stop doing last week? That meant that I didn't have enough screen time. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, what is the right level of screen time is probably the well, question that I haven't. Yeah. It'll be probably different for each one of us, which is the other thing that you know we can get into depending on what you're exactly doing. But moving that on, you, you mentioned a few times there, you know, the last 15 months. And yeah. we all know the challenge COVID has placed, not just on, on us in the UK, but around the world. And and yes, how people have responded in, in huge ways positively. But mm. from a from a technology perspective, you know, us, like many businesses, we, we were we were in a place where we had a lot of our, our colleagues already working from home. We'd been mm. on that journey. We're, we're mm. a technology first business. We call it the digital workplace, uh, but also the flexibility around people working uh, at home as global mm. teams. Mm. Um, but we found we could move to an even higher level of that through yeah. being prepared to manage uh, our services and systems. But we were we were uh, key workers. A lot of our our colleagues sure. had to had to be in place, had to travel, had to still yeah. go to the office because data centers, uh, emergency services, yeah. setting up um, de- uh, the uh, the service desks for the Nightingale hospitals. Yeah. You know, something we did in mm. a matter of days where it would have mm. taken months. Yeah. accelerating processes, ensuring banking infrastructure, energy and utilities, all that stuff that sort of organizations, big technology businesses like us help manage yeah. jointly was was critical. It was critical infrastructure, mm. critical services that needed to keep running. So firstly, I always want to say thank you to our colleagues yeah. who continue to work and travel through those very difficult Absolutely. times in the early months and the first half of the pandemic. But secondly, you're right about the lessons that we've all learned. And that we don't sort of, there'll be obviously some regression. We do, I know we want to meet up. I, yeah. I, I want to meet up with you. I want to see you face to face rather than through, you know, Teams or whichever platform of your choice you're using. But there will be that balance. There will yeah. be that trade-off of what, because it's enabled us to probably change our, I, I wouldn't say way of life, but it has, but also mm-hmm. quality of life. I, yeah. I, I've been able to spend an amazing amount of time with uh, our young baby that we had over the last year. And that's been a, a, an unbelievable silver lining to this, this uh, situation mm-hmm. of COVID. But what would you, what's there been for you over the last few months that you think that's radically changed some the way your life ran and you thought that's something I really want to hold on to as we go forward? I think probably that um, I spend a lot of time traveling to and from London um, and obviously um, being in the House of Commons, uh, you were expected to be there for, um, you know, four days a week, uh, really. Um, and then lots of time traveling around, often at breakneck speed on Friday in the constituency, trying to get from, from meeting to meeting. And I do think the hybrid world now um making decisions about where we're going to hold meetings, whether we are going to do it face to face, whether that's better done that way, uh, or in fact, whether um, particularly I think quite transactional things, um, it, it, it's possible just to jump on, a, on, a, on an online call and, and you do it and you go exactly as you say to have more time uh, at home with the, with the family. Um, and I mean, I was I had just left government in February 2020, just as we sort of um, embarked on the first lockdown. I was a month into a very different pace of, of life and expecting not to be able to work for a couple of months because of the restrictions on uh, ministers once people have left uh, government. Um, and so, like you, I think, like many, many people, spending time at home. But I think what's also interesting is that the 
uh, people's experiences of the pandemic are very much conditioned clearly by their their own personal experience or those experiences of, of people around them. So exactly as you say, for those that, you know, for as many of us who were able to be at home, uh, then of course there were people who were having to go into uh, work um, and who were keeping keeping the lights on literally, um, keeping the computers uh, running, um, obviously uh, looking after uh, those who were sick. Um, and so I think uh, the other thing is, is I hope that what we'll hold on to is a bit more respect and understanding for um, different people's experiences and not assuming that everybody has, has has seen things the way that we've seen them. And I think we're sort of fine that now, aren't we? Even with things like social distancing and the wearing of masks, you know, some people I think will carry on following those rules even when they don't have to. And other people can't wait obviously to, to, to resume life as they saw it uh, before. But I don't know about you, but I'm certainly finding when, you know, absolutely social contact, you know, you and also the other thing you've, you know, I've missed is friendships, is seeing people in person. Uh, but just just when you meet people for the first time, it is a kind of you just got to that, that sort of slightly awkward thing about are we doing elbow bumps? Are we are people competent enough to do hugging? Are people still standing two meters away from each other? Um, uh, all of that is definitely something that we're going to have to, I think, work out, work out for ourselves and, you know, not conversations or things we ever thought we would do 15, 16 months ago. Yeah, it's amazing how things have dramatically changed. I think the one thing that does, as, as a born and bred Londoner who spent a, m many years travelling on the tube and never enjoyed the summer months yeah. on the tube, because let's be honest, it gets pretty hot down there. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something I'm thinking about wearing a mask and being hot on the tube. But at this point, we're not doing it. And I, I think you're right. There will be a hybrid way. And we yeah. will work our way through this. That, yeah. That's probably the, the real positive exactly. message. Almost. But just, just moving that message on then, because we've seen a huge challenge for government in, in yeah. and all governments around the world, let's be honest, everybody mm. is facing the challenge together. So whichever government you choose or yeah. whichever, whichever party, whichever politics, we've all had to face the yeah. challenge. But governments have made decisions. On the whole, they've actually been pretty aligned in decisions that, yeah. that they've made. So th th there is that to be said. But there's also that change in terms of both working with the private sector, because if mm. there's something that this pandemic turbocharged, mm. it was the need for partnership, collaboration, yeah. acceleration, Absolutely. sometimes, dare I say it, tearing up the rule book. Now, yeah. in, in a positive way, I, I know we've all seen some of the coverage <laughs> about contracts and everything else and yeah. how that goes, but vast amounts of work that was done in a positive way and has mm. delivered uh, for for people in this country and around the world, but that 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 going forward, and I'm very interested because you know you've been involved in a report that Policy Exchange mm. recently published yeah. about reimagining government yeah. and what government needs to do to yes build back better because that is fundamentally what we do need to do, but also in that other big agenda that government has about leveling up. Yeah, but you've been looking at you know some of the structures of government and. Mapping to say, as we look at it, from a, all the kind of elements that technology has a part to play in whichever area yeah. of government you look at, what were the sort of the real findings that you think, you know, stick in your mind from that? It's quite a weighty piece. Mm. I know I've, I've had a look at the report. It's probably got a lot to come from it in terms of, I know that Michael Gove has taken on yeah. and looking at some of the recommendations you've yeah. made and others who've been part of it. So what, what would you say, you know, that initially, um, has to really be retained from a what we've learned from how we've handled and responded to dealing with the challenges mm. that COVID has placed us, but also the challenges of delivering technology both in Whitehall, but in broader public sector services as well. 
Well, I think actually that's so it is a weighted home, and I I hope that um, it's. It's a use, and it's not just for ministers. It is absolutely for senior civil servants and, and really anybody who's interested in good government and good governance. Um, and they aren't always uh, often the, the, the same thing, but they should be. Um, and I think regardless of the pandemic, there was a feeling that actually the 21st century is so very different from what we've seen before uh, that um, there was going to have to be a review of the way that, that, that government worked. And I think, so three things, you mentioned a really important word there, Colby, which is delivery. Uh, and one of the conclusions was that often the way our civil service um, has worked so far is that um, there's been more kudos, if you like, and therefore uh, people have sought to go into policy roles, often because that gets them nearer ministers, which is often where you know officials will, will want to, to be, than into delivery roles. And as we saw, um, in some cases, in order to get uh, projects stood up quickly, uh, we had to bring in the army. Uh, who obviously have uh, you know extremely disciplined way of of doing things and making things happen. And so I think that focus on delivery in future is going to be really, really important. And actually, start, when we started, you said I was the sort of person who liked to get things done. I think um, pretty well everyone in, in public service is exactly like that. And there are all those frustrations. And exactly as you said, the last 15 months have shown that actually when something has to be done, uh, then, of course, there can be lessons about would, would you do it that way uh, again? But actually, if everybody pulls together and really wants to make something happen, it, it is possible. And we can do it really, really well in the United Kingdom. I think the second thing is very much uh, thinking about the career structures. Um, the report says that, that ministers tend to move on too quickly. Um, and I, I would say ministerial shelf life, um, you know, can be very short. And sometimes there are reasons uh, for that. I mean, I, I chose to, to leave government for other reasons in February uh, 2020. But um, but also officials um, move around too much and too quickly. Uh, and then you lose all of that sort of corporate knowledge, if you like, that um, understanding of the department and the delivery and the policy area. Uh, by and, and people, it seems to be that people need in order to get promoted to move departments as well. Now, of course, one of the great things about being a civil servant is the breadth of experience you can gain. But equally, I, I suspect that in you know private sector organisations, they will try to hang on to their good people uh, and really make sure that they are absolutely at the top of their game in terms of the knowledge they've, they've gained um, for as long as possible. Um, Levelling up, I, I think uh, the civil service, particularly going back to our discussion about hybrid world, not everybody doesn't need to be based in London. Um, and, and of course, most of the country is not based in London. And so I think they do feel when they look at uh, everything being based in Westminster and Whitehall, you know, why does that have to be uh, be the case? And then finally, this thing about sometimes it is a bit too much. If it's not invented here, i.e. in Whitehall, then we're not interested. Um, and that is a frustration, I think, for many organisations, which is, look, they've got some good answers trying to get traction and being listened to in Whitehall can be very, very difficult. It, it shouldn't be that difficult. But then as we've also seen over recent weeks, they've got to be the right structures in place, for people to listen to ideas from, from outside and who's written them forward and to make sure they're road tested uh, before people just go off and frolic of their own. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how, how you place the sort of I wouldn't say revolving doors, but the moving dynamic in in the public sector. Yeah. And it's something generally that the private sector does get quite frustrated with yeah. when it's trying to engage with with ministers with, or with government departments, you know, whether it's a political level or whether it's a senior civil okay. servant level or even when it's a delivery level. And I can give you some reflection <laughs> from me. I, you know, I've almost spent 25 years now in, in my career, which Gosh. only four were full-time in the public sector when I was working for the Mayor of London. Mm, mm. Now, 
in the other years, I, only, I spent time in three organisations. Uh, the first decade was actually delivering, turning around major infrastructure projects that were going wrong through programme project consultancy. And I saw all array of problems at that point. And one of them was the, the PFI called Prestige that delivered the Oyster card. Yeah, yeah. So it's been half years on that. But I got, I got to see very close hand the sort of challenges on that boundary line between public and private sector. And then in City Hall, um, you know, you were the conduit between delivery organisations, um, the the sort of civil servants, in my case, TfL, and us from a political perspective, trying to ensure policies were delivered that were required. Yeah. Now, the mayoralty was slightly different because you had a fixed four years and we were all in place. But I also had, I think I, I had five secretaries of state yeah. in four years. Yeah. Um, and three governments, because there was the Labour government when we came in in 2008, a coalition government, and then a, a Conservative government yeah. to deal with. So you lay that on and you realise the challenge yeah. of delivering infrastructure, which takes longer. Any service redesign, in fact, any yeah. policy message takes time to deliver at a national level. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, the report quite rightly says, if you've got, and I think the report flags the £600 billion of infrastructure investment that we're kind of looking at through whether it's leveling up or all of the programs that are happening or plans happen in the coming years and no doubt will happen mm. but that that ability to be more consistent in relationship and delivery mm. between the two sides I think it, it will be essential so I do hope you know more of this report is looked at and others yeah. look at this because I think you also make some recommendations about um, a, a digital and data yeah. audit of this and I was interested to understand how do you see that? Because that's something that, it, again, sometimes the digital side can be a bit of the Wild West because not everybody understands, you know, what, what's going on there. So your your thoughts on where that might help in terms of getting delivery right? Well, I think we know that government has got an enormous amount of data uh, and uh, the ability to uh, to use that data in a way that we talked about trust earlier on, in a way that uh, people whose data that is trust how it's being used um, and are confident. But I think people, by and large, if data is anonymized um, and sensitive items are, are not, not released, they understand that actually if that's going to improve healthcare, or planning for future services, um, you know, all, all sorts of, of, of different things, then I think people understand that actually their data can be really, really useful. And, and many organisations discovered, I mean, as I said, as DCMS secretary, data is like the new black gold, uh, but it's got to be, be used in the right way. It's got to be used ethically. Um, obviously, there's got to be potentially a role for uh, that data perhaps being used in a sort of uh, AI type context to, to speed up delivery of some services. I think there's still a great frustration that actually we still don't have a sort of national digital identity that really uh, works. And you know, there are some arguments people will say, well, hang on a second, I don't want government knowing everything about my, my life. Um, but of course, people hand over data to some of the social media platforms um, where, you know, again, they, they and there's lots of debates around that now about where that data is, is going and everything else. I think one of the big challenges, and I don't think this is just for government, I think it's for any organisation, is recruiting the right person to be a kind of chief Whitehall data and digital officer, um, because those roles are really difficult to fill now, going back to our thing about skills and, and having people realising that these great roles are, are there. Uh, and so that's also going to be another big challenge for, for, for government. And, and I think one of the other things is obviously all the departments do things differently 
And so they often have different rules. And again, what we saw in the last 15 months was that actually when data is shared, and again, it's got to be done in a responsible way and through a you know properly drafted framework, but actually you can really make a difference so uh, to people's lives. So actually we're able to share data about um, perhaps uh, people's working patterns with uh, the support that they might need, uh, you know, with um, sort of uh, health uh, outcomes and everything else as well, and build up a picture of, of people's lives um, and then put in, in place support that's really going to make a difference. That's that's a great prize to have, but obviously there's lots of steps there uh, that have got to be completed in the in the first place. So I think there's lots of willingness, lots of interest in central government about the use of of data and a realization that there's lots of potential, um, but that's all it is at the moment. You know, lots and lots of work to do. Yeah, so I, I think you're you're spot on there, especially that that point about government departments. You know, I, I, we like many organisations who are key strategic suppliers to government. Yeah. Um, know the challenge of working across multiple departments and sometimes that challenge of actually where does the digital agenda sit because yeah. there can be projects and different requirements that sit across departments but then there's the digital elements yeah. and these things whether it comes to data or managing of things that are consistent across those departments you know well sometimes that can sit with cabinet office maybe sometimes yeah. with, maybe sometimes with treasury yeah. maybe sometimes with dcms yeah and, and that also can depend on the the push and pull and the machinations of the political conversations at any given moment so look and i think that dynamic won't change i think we we do understand that um and i think that's that's a challenge for us to navigate but also working with government is essential from my perspective i think you know having looked at both sides of the coin for a number of years I think we only work better when we work together yeah. to get the right outcomes. And you know, I've spent the last few years on the on the cabinet office industry forum mm. and some things to help that relationship between public and private sector evolve because it there is a huge prize for the public here about better yeah, services. Absolutely. But there's always been a prize about better services, but now it's about technology driving better services. Absolutely. And as you probably say, there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of opportunity and we should try our best to get it right working together. Yeah, that, that was my sermon from the mouth. Sorry. Definitely. No, I think we're all on the same. I think we're all on the same. Page. I think as ever, the frustration, I think the frustration of people outside is we all can see what the opportunity is. We kind of know we want to get to. Why does it have to take so long to get there? Um, uh, and I think it's it's about whether it's through the policy exchange report or anything else. It's about really revving up that appetite. And, and I can go back to as well, you know, ministers, um, many of whom themselves are not digital natives, really understanding and saying, no, this is a this is now a political priority. Well, let's put another plug for it because it's called government reimagined. It's been published by Policy Exchange. There's a number of people who, like your good self, who've been involved in the production of this report. Please do look it up if you're interested in any of what we've been talking about uh, on this podcast so far. But now, uh, Nikki, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know <laughs> just how busy you are and how much you do. So we're coming to the end of, of this episode. But I've got two questions, which I always ask every okay. guest that comes on. So these are not, you know, those specific ones, for you, but they are things that will just delve a little bit into you. And it's a bit playfulness <laughs> as well. So the first one is, how do you nowadays consume media? Because <laughs> yeah, whereas we were all, you know, let's get the Sunday papers or let's get a newspaper mm. or let's get a magazine and uh, those old days of page flicking, some of us still like to do that. I know I do sometimes. But how, how do you find it at this present time you're consuming your media? So I have a, um, a Times um, and the FT on my iPad. 
um, and I download those in the in the morning um, and I will occasionally look at other newspaper websites. Um, I cannot remember, as you were asking that question, I was thinking I cannot remember the last time I bought a physical hard copy of a newspaper. Um, and I also, I guess, you know, look at inevitably Twitter um, and um, the, the BBC website as well, if there's a particular story. I think, you know, you have trusted sources, don't you? So if you know there's a sort of a, a big breaking news um, item, um, I would probably still go to the, the, the sort of the, the BBC website as the first place, actually, for chapter and verse on whether, you know, it was trusted or not. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, I'm still very much into the newspaper mould. But I think that makes me quite old, actually. I think that the next generation are um, not looking at newspapers in the way that we did. I think they'll wonder what a newspaper was, if I'm honest with you. But uh, as a supplementary of this, and I don't ask this to everyone, but this is an apt moment to ask you. So you mentioned the BBC, other mm. news sources are available. Yeah. Have, have you tuned into GB News? Have you had a flick over to um, that? I, I haven't yet, but my mum and dad, who I popped into their house uh, yesterday, they had it on. So I was watching it just out of the corner of my eye. So I look, I think... Um, I think having another news channel and having a bit of uh, competition um, and for them to see whether, in fact, there is, you know, a, a sort of a, an audience out there can only be a good thing. Well, we had Darren McCaffrey, who's the uh, political editor of yeah. GP News, on, on our podcast um, recently. So he'll be pleased to hear that, that you're at <laughs> least on your radar. You've seen, a, seen it out the corner of your eye. Yes. And, and the final question is, on a scale of one to ten, and, and I sort of got a glimpse of where you are because you mentioned your iPad here. But on a scale of one to ten, if one being you're a complete technophobe uh, and ten being you're a complete techno geek, you know, you get the latest thing, you're in the queue to get it before it's pre-released. Where would you position yourself on, on that on that geeky scale? I would probably say I'm something like a like a seven or an eight. Um, uh, my husband tends to be the one who will always get the, the latest uh, or he'll know about it or he'll tell me that there's a new um, operating system I've got to download and all that sort of thing. Um, but actually, I've probably got more confident as I've got a bit more time, actually, and particularly over the last year, got a bit more confident with my uh, with my technology. So, um, you know, I'll um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's growing on me. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I can see you're well embedded, uh, you, you know, FT and The Times reading on the iPad. Uh, you know, I, at least you're not having to carry the broadsheet around. You know, exactly. that, that was always exactly. a challenge with those two papers. I can see why they move quickly. To yes, life. quite. Baroness Nikki Morgan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on this edition of the Atos Digital Society podcast. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you do in the next 10 years, because if it's as packed as the last 10 years, I'm sure you're going to do lots and lots and lots more delivery. So good luck with that. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. To learn more about the podcast or suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please contact us at digitalsociety.atos.net or visit the Atos website.